I was reading just the other day about Esau and Jacob, and there's quite a story. I want to quickly recap in case you haven't read it lately, but the story of those two boys goes way back to Genesis 25, but we're going to take it up in about Genesis 32. We're, we're going, we now have a situation where Esau and Jacob were, were twins born. Their mother's name was Rebekah. And while they're still in the womb, the Lord said to Rebekah that the younger one will, will be the master over the older one. Now, that normally was not the case in their culture because the oldest one got the inheritance, got the father's blessings, which is two separate things, and then he was, he was supposed to look after the younger siblings, which, of course, didn't always work out that way. But in this case, God said, the younger will serve the older. The trouble is that Rebecca and Jacob kind of worked together over the years that they were um, growing up and into their adulthood. And instead of allowing God to bring the blessing onto Jacob and the inheritance onto Jacob, instead of them waiting for God, they felt they had to do it themselves. Kind of the story of many of our lives, and I have to admit, part of my life as well. Sometimes we just don't wait on the Lord to do things. And so it's, it was interesting that um, they took it upon themselves to say, let's make this happen. And it did happen. You can read the story how Jacob was successful in getting the inheritance, first of all. Then with his mother's help, he was successful and getting his dad's blessing. If you read those chapters, it's quite a story. So now we have a situation where Esau is quite upset. And so Esau made plans that he would kill Jacob, which I guess meant that then the inheritance and the blessing would come to him. At least I assume. The Bible doesn't say it. I'm assuming that. Rebekah heard Esau saying that he's going to kill Jacob. So she came to Jacob and said, you, got, you have to get out of here. You have to go to my brother way over in early the Chaldees or wherever it was he lived at that time, and you're going to have to stay there. And this is her statement. He says, your brother Esau is consoling himself by thinking of killing you. I thought, what an interesting statement. If we are upset by someone, if we're hurt by someone, and we don't forgive them, we don't deal with it with blessing them and loving on them as the Jesus taught us, then if we start to think about how we're going to get even, when we come up with a plan how to get even, there's something about that that makes us feel better. It consoles us. And so Jacob had to flee. He left with absolutely nothing but his staff, as we'll see in this chapter that we're going to be looking at, and lived there for a number of years with her brother Laban. 
Now, he said to Laban, I would like to marry Rachel, your daughter, second daughter, and I'll work for seven years. And so he did. Well, then when the wedding night come, they didn't have electricity in their tent. So um, Laban put the oldest girl, Leah, in there first. And he went in and slept with her, which means they're now married in that culture. And in the morning, shock upon shock, it's the wrong woman in the bed. And now I'm married to her. I'm committed to her because people knew, their family knew that I spent the night with her. So he made a deal with Levin that he would work another seven years for his younger daughter, uh, Rachel, whom he loved very much. Now, there's a lot about the kids. Uh, they eventually, um, where they were, they had 11 boys and one girl. And the two different wives f did some fighting against each other. They loaned them their, their nurses in order to have children on their behalf when they couldn't have children. It's quite a story. So here we are now. And God has said to Jacob, after 20 years working for Laban, looking after his flocks, and coming up with a plan how he could um, get some income from looking after the flocks. And he ends up with a very large herd of goats and sheep and camels. Became very wealthy, two wives and 11 children. Now, in this struggle, um, of working under Laban, who was very manipulative and changed his Jacob's salaries many times, 20 times altogether. Jacob, now, we find him in chapter 32 of Genesis. We're going to start um, looking at this because God had said to him, I want you to go back home. And so, he, get, he had his donkeys and his sheep and his goats, his maid servants and his maid, maiden servants, and he sent word when he was traveling out. He hadn't let Laban know. He got out from under him without Laban knowing. Laban caught up with him later, and, and he had to make peace with him because the Lord warned Laban to be good to him. And now he's in a place where he's coming near home, and he sends one of his servants to where his brother Esau is. They were living um, up in a place called Seir. We sometimes hear it called Mount Seir. And so the servant comes back and he said, Esau and a, a whole bunch of men, like I think it was 400 men, are coming to meet with you. Well, Jacob remembered that Esau wanted to kill him because he'd stolen his birthright and he'd stolen his inheritance. And so that thought has been with him all his life, and now he's coming back home. And so in verse 7, this is where we find Jacob right now, on the, on the, on the border of being home perhaps. We don't know exactly geographically where he was, but on the border of being home, and he, the servant says, your brother's coming with this army of man. And so this is what Jacob happened in his mind. It says in verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels well. 
Now we'll stop there. You see, he said, I'll put one group here and one group way over there. My brother gets here. If he annihilates one, he'll probably think that's it and go back home happy. At least one group will live. But you see, he was at a place where he wasn't trusting God. God had told him to go home. And we're going to see in a few minutes much more what God said about him going home. But in verse 8, it's interesting. It says, he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Now, here's, here's your first problem. Besides the fact that he stole an inheritance and stole a blessing, here's the problem now. He went by his thoughts. His thoughts were causing fear, it says in verse 7, both fear and distress. I think you have experienced that. I have experienced that. Distress is kind of ringing the hams, oh dear. Now what will I do? Fear, of course, drives that. And so he's torn between, I have to face Esau, but I'm told to go home where Esau would have access to me. And so he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, that's what he's thinking. Now, some of the biggest problems in life, individually especially, is caused by what we think. And you see, I'm convinced that Satan in his attacks against us, he will fire off what Ephesians calls fiery darts in the old King James or in the new, some of the newer translations, flaming arrows. And he shoots those into our mind. And he designs them in such a way that we're quite convinced that it's my thought when really it's the enemy firing stuff into my, th my thought receiver there. And so, here's poor Jacob. <clears throat> Esau's got 400 men. Jacob's, Jacob's got a bunch of shepherds, 11 children, two wives, and a bunch of male and female servants. And so what is he going to do? He thought, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill my wife and children. That's what he thought. And then in verse 9, he starts to get a hold of something. You know, Christians are kind of the same way. After we go through, a, we're going on a crisis, and we're wringing our hands, and we're full of fear. Somewhere along the line, Somebody says, why don't you pray about it? Well, maybe one of his wives told him to, or maybe an angel of the Lord or the Holy Spirit, whatever. But it says in verse 9, Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, that's very key, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, 
and I will make you prosperous. So here Jacob is saying, I'm not only told to go back, I'm going to be made prosperous. And so he must be thinking. And he's thinking, here's all this fear and these thoughts coming at me. But over here is the voice of God. And the voice of God said to me, go back, I'm going to make you prosper. So let's think about now. If, if, if God said, I'm going to go back and I'm, and I'm going to be prosperous, doesn't that mean that Esau's not going to kill me? And so he thought about it. And then in verse 10 he says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I have only my staff when I cross this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. So stop there, verse 10, you see? Listen, when you want God to start coming with strength to counteract the thoughts, the fears, the distress that those thoughts are coming, it's about time you humbled yourself, and that's what he did. I am, I am unworthy. All the stuff you've given me, Lord, I didn't deserve it. He might as well, like if he'd been around today and used the Christianese language that we use, he'd probably said, Lord, I'm just a sinner, and, and, and I need your grace. I need you to help me in this, because you have said I'm supposed to go home, but you also said when I get there, I'm going to prosper. So in verse 11, he says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid. So it's still there, still hitting him. I'm afraid. That fear is still banging away at him. I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So this guy, he's in a mix. He's praying, but he's still fussing with his thoughts. He's anxious about them. He's distressed by them, and he's... He's praying and he's humbling himself, but he needs to do something. He did it slightly a little bit earlier in verse 9 when he said, God, you said to me. But now he says, even though they are coming, even though he's got 400 men, even though he has the ability to kill me and my family and to take everything, Lord, you have said, but bad, but changes everything. Instead of going to the doubts and unbelief, but turns me around. God has said, my fears, my distress, my anxiety have said to me, I'm done, I'm dead, I'm going to get it. But Lord, you have said, I will not only go home, I will prosper. So therefore, Lord, I'm going to hang on to what you said. He said, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make you descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now listen, Jacob, if God's going to do all that, that means Esau isn't going to kill you. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, of course. The trouble is, do we believe that God will do what he said he will do? And Jacob was moving towards that place where he's saying, yes, 
I believe that you will do, Lord, what you have said you will do. Now, the whole picture of the helmet of salvation from Ephesians 6. The helmet is a helmet of salvation. What you have up here in your knowledge of the Word of God, it has the ability to save you. I didn't say it will. I said it has the ability to save you. And what you have up here is the Word of God. That's why it's important to know what God has said Know the Bible, get to know the New Testament especially, but the promises of God, the promises of Jesus and the apostles, get to know them up here. Because Jacob knew up here that God had said, I will bring you home, I will prosper you. Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. He was getting it. But you see, both in verse 8, no, pardon me, in verse 9, he quotes what God says. Again, in verse 12, he quotes what God has said. Do you know what he's doing? He's moving it from here down to here. In the innermost being, people call it in your heart, but it's really in the innermost being. If you want to, ref I'll refer to it as the heart, but that's the innermost being. And you see, there's an example of someone who already had the Word of God in his heart. It's from Luke, it's, pardon me, John chapter 4, verse 50. This is a royal official. He had a son at home who was dying. He found Jesus. He asked Jesus to come to his house. Jesus said, you go on home, your son will live. Now listen to what the royal official said. The man, the man, I'm sorry, what John, the man took Jesus at his word. In other words, he heard, he chose to believe, and he, that's the way he believed. He simply said, Jesus said it, I believe it. It's as simple as that. Believing is as simple as that. He said, Jacob was on his way home because he had a word from the Lord, you're supposed to go home. And he was going. But in that faith that God would look after him, he was still bombarded with the thoughts of what Esau might do to him. And so he knew he had to deal with, it, with this threat that was against him. He knew something in his heart, and that's why he said in, in verse 9 and again in 12, this is what you said, God. Here's the circumstances, but... God said this, and that's so important in our day-by-day -day life. When things come pressing around us, when things are tormenting us, there needs to be something up here, a knowledge of the Word of God that says, here's the verse, here's the scriptures that can help you. And because we've already spoken them out and confessed them, maybe sang them in songs, we now have them implanted in our heart. And our natural response to the thoughts of fears or distress or agony, all that stuff, we can say, I know what God has said in spite of the circumstances. This is what God has said. Now we know that God looked after him because when Esau came, he embraced Jacob, loved on him, 
And Jacob said, oh, what, a, what, a, what a relief. I'm paraphrasing. What a relief to know that I have found favor in your eyes. Interesting enough, the bitterness and the resentment against Jacob by what is now later would be called the Edomites, which is Esau's descendants. They had never really forgiven and got rid of this evil that Jacob had done against their ancestor Esau. And around 1,500 years later, when Israel was now in the promised land and God was using the Edomites to bring judgment because of their sin, they went too far. And God said to the Edomites, I'm going to punish you for what you did to Israel. You went too far. And he says that because of your ancient hostility that you did what you did. So we know that Esau here has not fully forgiven, but he's, he's, he's putting on this, yes, welcome home, brother. Regardless of how you felt in his heart, welcome home, brother, even though he may not have fully agreed with them. Now, if you wanted to look at some of the things that I'm talking about, Romans 10, verses 8 to 10. I have spoken on this so often. I've spoken from this passage here on television before, and I'll speak it again a hundred times if the Lord wants me to. But he's trying to say, Paul is trying to say that what you have in your head as you speak it out, as you sing it in songs, as you quote it from Scripture, it'll get into your heart. And, and it's with it's with the mouth that it gets into your heart. And then when the enemy comes against you, he says, what we have up here and what we have down here, if we speak it with our mouth, the words coming out of our mouth, and he says in Ephesians 6, combining these two passages, he says the word coming out of your mouth is a sword that drives the enemy back. The word coming out of your mouth is like a shield that stops the fiery darts of the enemy. It starts to protect your mind. And as you keep at it and keep at it, the thoughts begin to diminish. The words coming out of your mouth get more and more powerful until the enemy is driven back. It has worked for me so many times. I preach it knowing it works. I'm not preaching it because I heard somebody else. I'm preaching it because it works. But we must take the word of God. We must use it as a sword against the enemy and as a shield to protect ourselves. Defensive, offensive, both are necessary. Both originally here with knowledge. God said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The lack of knowledge, we don't know what to say because it's, if it's not knowledge, we can't get into our hearts and we've got nothing to fight the enemy. You might say, Howard, you just, you sound like somebody else I heard that was off the wall. Listen, I don't apologize for, for this Romans 10 verses 8 to 10. It's in the scriptures. Yes, people have abused this teaching. It's in the scriptures. And you say, whenever the enemy comes at me, I don't care what other people may have taught. Some have taught wonderful messages on this. Some have abused it where you're saying, make yourself rich if you keep saying things. I don't preach that. I think God wants us to prosper. But it's not for selfish reasons. And you say, 
those words coming out of my mouth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.13, he says, what is the spirit of faith? What is it? In other words, Hebrews 11.1 1 describes the noun faith. 2 Corinthians 4.13 describes the verb faith. He says, what is the spirit of faith? The word spirit means action, power. What is the spirit? He says, I believe, therefore I spoke. I used to think faith was when you crunch your fist and the veins stand out in your neck. Oh, I believe God. No, it's when you take what you know, believe it in your heart, and speak it with your mouth. May I please give you an example of someone who did this? Someone who's much more spiritual than we are, me or you, and yet he had to fight the enemy just the way I'm talking here. His, his name is Jesus. And when he was in the wilderness, it says in the book Bible that the, the um, enemy attacked him the same way he attacks you and I. And he attacks me and you probably through thoughts, which produce feelings, of course. And here's Jesus in the wilderness being attacked the same way. And how did he respond to the attacks? I'll tell you how he responded. He knew in his head what the Word of God said in relation to the situation. And he believed in his heart. And when he spoke it out of his mouth, the shield come up, the sword come out, and after three times he drove the enemy back. If Jesus had to fight back, we do. Get that into your understanding. We have to fight back. It says in verse 14, just before he starts talking about the helmet of salvation and, and the things I'm not going to be talking about, the shoes and the breastplate and all that, but he says, I want you to stand firm. When Jesus drove the enemy back with the word of God, he was standing firm. If I say, oh dear, there's the enemy again, oh dear, oh dear, I have these terrible, I guess I better go see my counselor, I better call my pastor, I'll call a friend and see if they'll have pity on me. Instead of doing that, why don't we say, stand firm, I'm going to take the word of God, I'm going to start attacking him as he attacked me. Father, we need more unction, more warfare in our lives against the enemy, not against people. Help us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.